Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers on the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talk to Alex Rico, class of 2007, a global category manager for Tate & Lyle, a multinational food and beverage company. Alex will share with us how his background in music as a jazz guitarist helps him keep his skills sharp in negotiating global supply chain management contracts. Joining us from the class of 2007 is Alex Rico. Alex, what do you do? Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. I am a global category manager, which is a fancy word for someone that works in procurement uh, for the companies called Tate & Lyle. Uh, We are a publicly traded global food manufacturer of ingredients, artificial sweeteners, also make some industrial products for like the uh, paper industry, cosmetic industry, but um, currently home base with the pandemic going on. But uh, I essentially manage a category, which is contract labor, a fancy word for labor and services at our plants and our uh, grain elevators. And uh, I manage contracts, negotiate pricing, terms and conditions with suppliers, work with our stakeholders to solve problems. And, uh, and yeah, there's like a lot of sub questions that go on on, (laughs) on that. So, which is, so let's, let's, let's maybe start to just kind of maybe define some terms, which is what, what does procurement mean? Procurement's like also another fancy way of saying purchasing. So, um, I'm buying, I'm, I'm negotiating and to buy goods and services on behalf of the company. And uh, the way our organization is structured, we have categories. So I have a counterpart that manages chemicals or food ingredients or packaging. And I I happen to have contract labor. So I'm I'm managing um, at our manufacturing sites. We have third party contractors who help run our operations. We have electricians. We have cleaning uh, you know, people providing cleaning services and, um, my responsibility is to manage that spend. So give or take around a little over $200 million of spend is under my umbrella. They, uh, are trusting me with that, I guess. And, um, (laughs) I, uh, work with my team, work with the stakeholders at the plants to basically, um, you know, negotiate competitively benchmark who, who we use and, uh, try to pick the best business case for the, for the company. So when you, so you have this allocation of money, like $200 million to, to use, to essentially negotiate the type of labor costs that your company is going to need. And this is for all, uh, uh, labor throughout, um, Tate and Lyle. Correct. Yeah. So we're a, a global company. Um, we have, plant locations throughout the throughout the globe but i would say the great majority of the activity the volume the spend is here in the u.s uh there's 10 plants uh across the u.s and then there's four major corn plants uh they corn wet mills and um they just all day long they're they're 365 days a year 24 7 uh milling corn which is they just have millions upon millions of bushels of corn coming through that door and they're turning it into corn syrup to dextrose different ingredients that uh you may not even know you're consuming that um 
like our our customers are using for like uh, adding dietary fiber or adding like texture to their food, um, adding flavor to the food, replacing sugar with artificial sweeteners so that um, it's a healthier healthier alternative than sugar. Wow. So now I have even more questions with that. Like, so just now to kind of come back to something that you had, you had just said, which is that, you know, you're, you're the base of knowledge that you have to have, which is negotiation. You have to know labor law. You have to know this, but then how much science do you have to know when you're talking about the types of logistics that go into just making sure that everything is as expedient and as, as efficient as possible at where these plants are. Yeah. Um, I'd say more so when I first started, I, I worked in our, our packaging group. So I was probably more on the end customer. I had a lot more exposure to our end customers and had to have a better appreciation, which I think I'm very fortunate to, to have gone that path to know um, my current role. I'm strictly, I would consider behind the scenes really uh, with our global operations, with our plant stakeholders. So not a whole lot of science. I definitely, you have to lean on the plant stakeholders to be your technical resource. Um, the engineers, um, you know, when you're doing negotiations, you have to pick and choose when it's appropriate to bring them in to speak on the technical side of things. And then sometimes politely have them leave just so you can continue the commercial discussions. Um, so yeah, I, I it's impossible to know everything, but um, definitely networking with the right stakeholders can be good good for you. Well, that that is so interesting. We're going to come back to because I'd love to know more about your approach to negotiations and all that stuff. But I thought maybe we'd kind of rewind all the way back. When did you know that you wanted to go into business? You went to Elmhurst College. Yeah. Uh, I, so uh, did you always know that you wanted to go into business? Did that start at WeGo or how did that start? No, actually, um, and honestly speaking, I can say when I was in high school, I had no idea that this type of profession, occupation even existed. So um, I, I initially wanted to do uh, jazz, jazz guitar. I still play guitar, but quickly learned when I went to Elmer's College that I was way over my head. There was, I mean, Elmer's is probably one of the, you know, the best prestigious jazz uh, schools in the country, definitely in the Midwest. And um, yeah, I was a little over my head on that. So I decided to pivot and go back to international business. But um, I continued taking jazz lessons as an elective. And uh, I guess a little funny side story. I knew for sure I wasn't going to be a jazz guitarist because I had to, had to do a recital. And uh, I was like, just please don't make me do a recital. And he's like, no, you, if you're going to receive credit, you got to do a recital. And <laughs> like the fact the faculty is just like all of them are just Grammy award winning, like monster players at what they do. And um, he actually passed away last year of COVID. But Mark Colby, just a monster sax player. I finished my song. It's like dead quiet. And he's the first one that speaks up and he's like, you're not a music major, are you? And I'm like, oh, my God, like, this is great. Like, <laughs> so, so, yeah, he was brutally honest, which I appreciated. But uh, but yeah, at Elmer's was definitely a lot, a lot of fun. It's a smaller school, um, with like 3000 undergrad. And uh, so it, it's definitely a smaller experience, but it's closer to the city. So enjoyed it um, for what it, what it was. But um did not know until I did my internship with um, my first company that I wanted to pursue uh, procurement as a as a profession. What was their first internship? Where was that? Which company? 
it's a small mom and pop industrial pipe fitting company called MSI, and they're in St. Charles. And uh, they sold industrial pipe fittings like elbows and couplings and pipe. And uh, they imported it from the Southeast Asian Rim. And then they would have, um, you know, customers uh, of all types in the U.S. and uh, and globally that they would sell to. And working for a small company is definitely interesting, especially as your first role. But um, you definitely wear a lot of hats. And I mean a lot of hats, like every function from taking sales calls to doing procurement, maybe even working in the warehouse some days, um, definitely gave me a, a really quick reality check and uh, appreciation for how businesses run, um, you know, how, how much hard work there is, especially for a smaller company to, to get going. Do you remember what your favorite part was when you were, were there? I mean, obviously you went into procurement, but was, was there something uh, else that kind of maybe, you know, it's kind of like, was there a, a complementary element of procurement that was within the company that kind of made you stronger at, at that ultimately? Yeah, I mean, uh, I liked negotiating and working with with suppliers to, I mean, we were definitely more profitable as a company if we could successfully negotiate competitive pricing um, from our supplier partners overseas in Asia. Um, it's just, you know, it's a lower cost country sourcing. It's and in many cases, better quality products found there as well. And um, I, I found it enjoyable as a win-win kind of cliche that, you know, we I was helping the company be be more profitable, me just being this 21-year-old kid out of college. And, uh, you know, the rest of the, the team was kind of benefiting from my work that I was putting in, which is really cool to see right, out, right away. That must have been exhilarating to uh, be able to negotiate and see – an immediate savings or cost benefit uh, to the company. Do you remember exactly how you were given the reins to to, to take that risk? Uh, I was kind of just thrown in there. Um, I think my my manager, my boss at the time, he was the owner of the company. He very much just, I think he saw some potential in me, and he definitely wanted to push me hard, and um, you know, just threw me into the into the fire, I guess, and uh, started discussing with suppliers, and really. Um, you know, the only way to really learn is just to get the experience under your belt and just, you know, be a sponge and try to absorb as much as you can. Um, coming out of college, you know, your textbooks are, you think you're going to be negotiating with like German bankers or whatnot. And it's, it's not the case, you know, you definitely, I learned a lot of things early on, you know, how to, how to write a business email. Like that's not something you get taught. I don't think it's taught nearly enough. Hopefully it is nowadays, but definitely learned, um, you know, how to construct a, uh, you know, a concise email that outlines expectations. And, you know, especially when there's a time delay with somebody that's on the other side of the world, you know, you don't really have a lot of time to waste going back and forth, just trying to, you know, get on the same page with somebody. So um, a lot of, a lot of new things I learned really quickly. I, yeah, I, I just, you made me think that because of what you do is global in nature. Um, does that, mean that you have to keep um odd hours like are you taking business calls very early in the morning or kind of later at night as a result uh currently not not too much actually um sometimes i'll get up a little earlier for calls um we have a few plants in europe the netherlands slovakia um included that i'll take calls production calls for those teams but usually they're pretty good about trying to accommodate so that we're not too up Way, uh, getting up way too early, but 
um, back when I was at MSI, when I was in Asia, like I would take Skype calls and around this time of the night and I've gotten used to it. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just part of the gig, I guess. So uh, was that your um, main internship while in your undergrad or did you, uh, or did you have, did you work with a different company? No, that was, that was my main internship. I, uh, I, I don't know how I did it, but um, I actually got like the best grades of college when I was like full bore internship, full student. And I actually, actually was working at the park district as well. So, and then like two years before that, not doing any of those things and not as good of grades. So maybe just me being forced to be proactive and be diligent, I think helped me, you know, graduate with, with nice grades. So, uh, but yeah, that was my first internship and my first, I guess, real world job coming out of college. So you, um, so where do you, a- after college, did you, so you go, did you initially start at MSI or did, or did you go to Navistar next? What was the next uh, sequence of? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I went um, from MSI to Navistar and uh, Navistar is a commercial truck manufacturer, school bus manufacturer engine. Uh, and uh, my dad actually worked there uh, growing up when I, he worked there for 32 years. So it was always kind of on my radar as like a cool, like legacy place for me to go and, you know, work in his footsteps. And it was absolutely a lot of fun. Uh, it was just a super chaotic time to join the company. Just um, they had, they were definitely um, trying to right the ship from a poor engine strategy. So there was a lot of turnover with employees, um, layoffs. But for me, I think it was exciting because I like when, when a company is definitely trying to right the ship from a cost standpoint, they're listening to their procurement uh, department. And a lot of the ideas that we would propose would, would be at the front burner and we'd get a lot of engineering resources to help achieve those. I would imagine that, you know, in the scenario that you just gave about a company that is maybe hemorrhaging uh, the type of money that they are able to kind of remain solvent, profitable and all that. And in procurement, it almost it it almost feels like it's like that Apollo 13 where you have, all right, we got a paper clip (laughs) this and we got somehow be able to make talk to each other like um you know so much creativity comes from the poverty of of uh of resources in, in such a way what do you remember what was one of the kind of unique um challenges that you were able to kind of push through uh when you were working at Navistar underneath those circumstances yeah no um I'm, at the end of uh my time at Navistar I was managing our electrical components so um everything from alternators batteries starters and then also like the HMI, like your, your door pod module, like your, your radios. So it was exciting. It's subject matters um, for me, but um, working with the, the engineers there, I think they had, I mean, it's an automotive type landscape and very old school in that, you know, engineering leads, leads the company forward. And I think it was kind of a wake up call for everybody involved or, um, you know, I, I really want, made an effort to go and meet with my, my team over there, my stakeholders and, you know, learn what their objectives objectives were so we could try to collaborate on ideas. And um, I think that really helped me because I think I earned some of their trust, earned, earned my stripes with them. And that um, we had a couple projects that were, you know, multi, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, one of them being a million dollar, you know, cost saving projects that, um, you know, when you load it in as your, your, uh, your idea, 
um, you know, everybody immediately is like, well, we need to, we need to put all of our, uh, you know, we need to get all the resources on this one immediately to, to help, you know, make the company profitable. I mean, you can imagine how gratifying that is because it must be like solving a puzzle, you know, where it's all of a yeah. sudden kind of snaps together and you're able to kind of, you know, bring that type of savings or profitability to that. So, but you, you, so then you was, did you leave Navistar because you saw a better opportunity at Tate and Lyle? Cause it's a, it's, what's interesting is that these are wildly different uh, companies in terms of what they produce uh, what was the better opportunity at Tate and Lyle? Yeah. Um, for me at, at NAV, I, I love the subject matter. I like, you know, working on cars and trucks and I thought it was exciting. It was just, was like I had mentioned, it was super chaotic with lots of turnover and it was just hard to keep a team going and morale um, because there's constantly revolving door of engineers going either on their own accord or they were getting let go, unfortunately. But um, yeah, a couple employees from nav had left to go work for tain lyle which is in the food industry um not as cyclical as the commercial truck industry where there's maybe some more stability um and at the time uh, our first daughter our daughter lily was born there was a lot of uh just chaos in our own personal life just because she had was born uh, really premature and i just saw stability i saw familiarity with people i trust and worked with at nav and i decided to go where I thought the grass was greener and I firmly believe it is greener. Um, so happy with the decision I made. So have you been in that particular role at uh, Tate and Lyle from the get-go or did you kind of work your way into uh, global uh, category management? Yeah. So same type of, uh, you know, category manager where uh, when I joined Tate and Lyle, I was responsible for our packaging materials. So um, anything that's used to make our finished product and hundred percent, pretty much 99.9% of what Tain Law produces, they sell to B2B customers like Coke, Pepsi, Kraft, General Mills. Um, so they, we package a lot of our goods into craft paper bags, thousand pound super sacks, um, some liquid, con- you know, containers like drums and, um, other bulk size materials. So I was, learning a new category, um, which is okay. I mean, uh, I, I definitely enjoyed it and, um, gave me a good appreciation right off the bat for what our, our plants go through on a daily basis. Is it, you know, is the, the fact that you maybe at one point work with, um, tangible things like products, but you also have to deal with, uh, human capital right you have to yep. and all that how how are they similar and how are they different in how you kind of made that kind of shift in in your in your job yeah no it's my first foray into i guess quote-unquote indirect procurement um you know i'm not buying widgets i'm buying um you know laborers to perform a certain project and like you said and uh it's definitely more emotional i think uh there's way more emotion that's involved with the with the supplier and the stakeholders um when you're buying a widget it's pretty black and white it either works or it doesn't work or you know it's it's a good product or it's not and we kind of move on from that but um really what i've found in the last kind of year and a half two years is that it really boils down to the people providing the service and um you know the supervision that's involved can they you know be can they be not have to can you not have to hold their hand essentially to perform a task and kind of freeze up, you know, uh, 
capacity from your stakeholders at the plants uh, so that, you know, they can be trusted. And so, yeah, I think it's just, it comes with a little bit more emotion, but um, for me, I learned um, you try to think as objectively as you can try to make as clean of a, a business case as you can so that the right answer is clear from a, you know, a financial standpoint and also just from a risk standpoint with your stakeholders and not make it too much about emotions. This is going to seem like a kind of an out, out there question. Yeah. But um, I, I'm wondering, you know, you started off as a very right brain person in that you go off to college in Elmhurst and you wanted to be a jazz guitarist and, and now you're working in, in procurement, which is very logical, which seems to be very then left brain. Right. So yeah. I asked a question recently with a, a former uh, student who had a, a similar kind of background. She did ceramics and now she is an engineer. Um, I, I was wondering if there's any way in which how the jazz guitarist you helps the um the procurement brain of you and the procurement brain of you is somehow also helps the jazz guitarist in you as well like because i mean because it seems like it's such a left brain right brain yeah. uh, split that you have going on here because you're clearly very good at your job but you know but you know I'm, I'm wondering how the artist and the musician somehow helps in what you do yeah, honestly, never thought of it that way. And I think that's a good uh, epiphany you just gave me. <laughs> um, but no, I think it's absolutely true. Um, and I did marching band in high school and I did, uh, you know, jazz band, did pit orchestra. And, you know, you're working as a group to, you know, perform a song and hopefully it sounds good. So I, I think it kind of there's some similarities where you work with your team. Um, they may not be in the same department as you, but you guys, you've got the same common goal to do what's best for the company, either save money or, you know, improve things from a quality standpoint. So um, I think one of my strengths is just networking with, I think just reading our stakeholders, networking with them. I think that's really important that because um, I'm, I'm essentially selling ideas to my own company. And while I'm in procurement talking and negotiating with salespeople all day, it's, I'm also kind of wearing a salesman cap and selling ideas to my my team so i think getting to know them and just helps with the relationship and helps you make it an easier experience in selling i guess i don't know if that answers it but (laughs) it it makes me think of the the next you know part of that alex which is that you know that's not something what you just described in the last 30 seconds there that's not something that you ever probably learned in a book, right? Like this. Correct. However, it is kind of a consequence of a type of habit of mind or professionalism. How did you become, how did that become part of your repertoire of how you um, kind of problem solve? Yeah. um, I think for me, I, I I wanted to, understand our stakeholders point of view what their objectives were like take engineering for example they may not be laser focused on productivity or cost savings but they're you can draw some similarities so just meeting walking all the way over you know navistar was a huge campus uh walking all the way across campus sitting next to them listening to what they're working on what how can we try to collaborate and um you know synergize what we're trying to work on together i think is really important um just and it's always easier if you ever have 
if you're ever in, in need of help from someone, it's always easier to ask for help when you've had a little bit of an acquaintance with someone. So I definitely think networking is very important uh, for anybody going into really any role, but especially business, just not to, to overlook it and really take it, uh, you know, spend, invest time in it. Yeah, just because it's that, that human part of how to read the room and that that touch, you know, that is not something that is, it, it can be, it can be read in a book, but it's, it can only be practiced and inferred and yeah. uh, when it actually, it's on the job with that. So, so the, the company that you work for at Tate and Lyle, I mean, they're so diverse in the products that they, um, that they, 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 they make and, and, and just how they have just so yeah. many different, uh, fingers and so many pies with, with this. Um, it, do you, do you see yourself in this, uh, division, uh, for the foreseeable future or is there, is there another one that you're like, Oh, that would be kind of interesting to, to try out as well. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying my time currently with, uh, indirect I've up until now, up until a couple of years ago, I have only been on the direct side, you know, buying widgets, whether it's alternators or, you know, pipe fittings at the other company, the first company I started out and recently packaging. So, um, indirect, I think it's just good for me to continue to sharpen my skills at, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, despite everything going on in the world, um, I think my category was especially hit because we have, you know, physical people on site. And we, when the pandemic hit, we had to really scale back and, um, our company is very, very safety oriented, very safety, safety focused. And, um, we took it really seriously and wanted to, um, you know, mitigate any exposure to the virus and not, you know, disrupt any, inter- uh, operations at the plant. Cause we can't, can't make money if we can't make products. So, um, yeah, I think it's been a kind of a roller coaster the last, you know, eight, 12, 18 months or so, but I've enjoyed it, even though I've been here in my basement working remotely. Um, one of the jo- things I really enjoyed about my job was getting out to visit with the plant stakeholders and um, haven't been able to do that, but we've been, we've remained engaged with uh, Microsoft Teams, which isn't, isn't too bad. I actually think we might actually talk to them more than we would have um, with Teams here. Under a normal circumstance when everyone seems to be kind of cleared and vaccinated and travel is more likely um would you still be able to go to the various different uh places i mean and how how far what would be your range if you were allowed to travel under normal circumstances if at all yeah um i think i think eventually we will be able to travel again um the four corn plant three of the four corn plants that i spend the most time discussing different projects with are a day's trip away we have one in decatur illinois uh, about three hours south of here, and then two in Lafayette, Indiana. So uh, it's not too far away. And um, I, especially with, and we have a second little one on the way. So we'll, I guess I'll maybe re- revise my answer after I talk to my wife. But <laughs> as far as traveling, once when the second one arrives, probably we'll still work remotely just in respect of that. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, that's a, a part of the job I really miss just given the co- the, the pandemic going on. But um, hopefully soon, maybe at the end of this year. You need to work on the, uh, the place where you can go to the Maui plant and yeah, you know, <laughs> negotiations there. That would be, that would be ideal. Yeah. Uh, your, the company's, uh, based, it's a, it's an English, uh, yeah. 
were you ever able to was it was there any reason why you might be able to have to go to uh to london at all for this or nah um i would i would love to uh i only did a, a a layover there i think for a little bit but i actually um a couple two years ago i got to go we have a plant within you know 30 miles of amsterdam so i, I went to amsterdam um for a week and my wife mallory was a uh we go alone came with for that and that was awesome um and then uh the second part of my half of my trip was in uh, slovakia but in the middle in between i'm half polish and my mother's side of the family is still lives in poland i spent the weekend in warsaw visiting them uh so it was an awesome experience to reconnect with with relatives i haven't seen in 20 plus years and um you know to be able to the flexibility that my company gives me to be able to do that was just really, really awesome and very fortunate. That's fantastic. What a, what an amazing opportunity. Do, do you speak Polish? Uh, just a very little bit like Jean Dobry and, you know, just enough to survive, I guess, but uh, probably more on the Spanish side, um, half Mexican, half Polish. And uh, my dad kind of forced me to learn Spanish all throughout high school. And, um, you know, I took, uh, Spanish five. I remember with Mr. Fonzik and, uh, we go and, uh, still practice a little bit here and there, but I need to, I need to brush up on Polish. Definitely. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, you know, when, um, I was wondering because you, as a negotiator, when you go into, uh, your, your, your work and you have a new, let's say contract with a, a new vendor or whatever it may be, what are the things that you look for in order? And it's not to say that you're looking for an advantage. You're just trying to you know, procure the best uh, deal for your company and, and all that. How does a negotiator assess um, the challenge uh, when you begin the process? Yeah. Um, so I, I like to start with just understanding historical data. So I like to, go through spend data, whatever source I might have access to and just get my arms around. What are we talking here in terms of a, an opportunity? What is this value of this this contract we're working on? Um, and then meet with the stakeholders, let them know early on in the process that, hey, this contract's up for, for renewal or we have a commercial issue with a supplier for X reason. I think we need to benchmark them. And um, what do I need to know about before I, I go forward, any forward, but, um, yeah, I think early in my career, I, I would get caught up in the anxiety or the, you know, oh, I'm going to go up against, you know, this huge Fortune 100 company and I'm, I'm going to be nervous. And I've learned like and I've been taught, uh, so I can't really take credit for it, but like you're you're always negotiating with people. You're not negotiating with companies. So at the end of the other side of the table, there's other someone else just like you who's just trying to get the deal done as, as well. And. Um, you know, if you could just think of it from a people type standpoint, you should be, you should be okay. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting what you just said right there. Um, that, that makes yeah, it, that, you can take that. <laughs> kind of deflate the anxieties, just kind of seeing it uh, that way. So you have an incredible, and we had mentioned this earlier on, um, you have, you've, quite the budget, you know, to be able to allocate towards all of these um, various different labor costs, all that. How do you manage all of those various different aspects? I would imagine 
because things are always maybe coming up for renewal, renegotiation, and all of that, how, how what does your calendar look like in terms of knowing this is what's about to happen versus the future ones that you're going to have to um, begin to um, uh, find maybe new contracts for? How, that, I just can imagine that must be an incredible uh, yeah. of prior, prioritizing uh, where your energies go. How do you do that? Yeah, no, it, it's a challenge. Um, you know, it's impossible to solve everybody's questions or answer everyone's questions in a monthly basis. But, um, you know, we have tools that help us keep track of what's coming up for expiration. Um, I, this has been my first foray in being an actual people manager. Um, so I have a direct report and she's based in Knoxville, Tennessee and her and I, and then I also have a couple of dotted line reports that, um, this is like a team. My team is myself included four people strong and we, we kind of divide and conquer and, uh, work on, on as best, you know, as many projects as we can, um, you know, manage at a time, uh, I would say like of that 200 million, there's probably over half of that spend is allocated between like 20 some suppliers. So it, it kind of helps, you know, help us, helps us manage it. We have some key strategic suppliers that we have a lot of eggs in their basket and, um, you know, work on relationship building with those suppliers so that we, uh, can, you know, go through different storms together and, not be uh, at each other's throats, I guess. But um, yeah, I, it's sometimes feels like an impossible feat. Um, but a lot of what's going to happen will, will. I mean, you base it off of just historical spend. It's, it's money you know you're going to spend. Um, and you know, if you have time to benchmark it, I know, um, you know, you'll make time for the ones that are important. Well, that's that's great. Alex, I, I was before I ask you the question about um, uh, what tips of advice uh, that you have. You, it's I think any time that you have someone who has an expertise in music and jazz guitar and all that, what are your uh, what are your top five guitar albums? And it could be from any. <laughs> uh, with that, it doesn't have to be the top five, but like you know, who do you listen to as a that you have a jazz guitar ear for who do you listen to and you're like oh that's good like that that's that's yeah. master uh jazz guitar or guitarist who, who, who still who still uh makes your heartbeat stop you know with yeah um and i still play dabble from here here and there um but honestly i think people are not giving enough credit for some of the current like guitarists that are out there there's some really um prodigies out there that are really pushing the boundaries of what um because i know everyone goes to like Jimi hendrix eric clapton you know those legends but honestly i think there's like um uh tosin abasi he's from animals as leaders he's just a ridiculous guitar player um this guy named uh this band is Pliny from australia i've seen live before the pandemic a few times and these are younger dudes that are just absolute shredders and um they're not just noodling they're really composing like awesome you know, songs that you can just, a lot of it's instrumental, but you could just put on and just, you know, it's just, it's just great. So, um, I don't know. I think some of the folks will just go to like the old school, but they, there's definitely some good credit to be given to, uh, some of the new school guys that are out there right now. Yeah. I just, I, uh, my, my colleague, uh, Mr. Caltadroni. Yeah. Uh, started off as a very accomplished, rock and roll guitarist and it wasn't enough he evolved 
need to be a jazz guitarist. So it's, uh, and that's where he is uh, right now. He's a junior at, in high school and he absolutely loves um, uh, jazz guitar. So I, I'm always interested in learning more uh, about that. So yeah. uh, this has been really fun. Uh, and I, I really appreciate uh, your time here uh, no problem. Uh, with all this. And I, I was wondering if you could leave uh, us with some tips for success for current wildcats. Yeah. Um, I would say just kind of, Continuing on what I said earlier, but networking, especially um, if you're going into a business field, um, you know, even the stuff that may seem silly at first, you know, orientation um, where you may be in a room with people that like, oh, I'm never going to talk to this person. They're in X, Y, Z department. Well, I would take the time and get to know different people. Not saying you need to be their best friends, but learn who they are, because the cliche that it's a small world is absolutely true. Like there's people that you may need help from or you may even bounce to another company and you may run cross paths with that person. So you never know. So don't burn a bridge if you don't have to um, keep communication lines open and network. Wow. Alex, that was great. Thank you so much uh, for this great interview tonight. And uh, uh, I, I hope for all the best for, uh, for Rico number two coming down. Thank the you. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks you so much, Brian. Thanks for having me. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music, Podcasts, and search We Go Vox.